What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the All Things Croatia podcast. I'm your host, Stan Kozovac, and I'm bringing you the best of Croatia from around the globe. This episode is brought to you by Adriatic Tours, the best place since 1974 to book your cruises, tours, flights, and simply all things Croatia. Use the personalized code ALLTHINGSCROATIA to get a special discount and book your trip to Croatia today. For more information, go to www.adriatictours.com or click the link in the description. Now eat the modalje and let's get started. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. In this episode, we have special guest, Andrew Bogut. Andrew is a Croatian-Australian former professional basketball player who, among other accolades, was the first pick in the 2005 NBA draft, 2011 blocks leader, and a 2015 NBA champion. Uh, in this episode, we're going to learn about his Croatian heritage, professional career, and what he's up to nowadays. Andrew, thanks for coming on the podcast. No worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. It's really awesome to have you on. Um, you know, I just had Dino Raja on a few weeks ago, and so that was like my first big, you know, celebrity to get on the podcast, especially in the basketball world, and now to have you on here as well. I mean, I'm super excited to to hear from you and talk to you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your Croatian heritage? I know you were born in Melbourne, but the Croatian... Yeah, born in Melbourne. Uh, both my parents migrated to Australia in, in the 70s. Um, and yeah, my, my mother's from Karlovac, dad's from Osijek. Uh, so my grandparents were looking to, uh, you know, get out of Croatia at, at, at some point. Um, you know, growing up in the 40s, 50s, 60s was not the most kind of prosperous time in Croatia's history with, with everything going on. There was every other year there was some conflict or some wars or, or something going on. And then you had the world war before that. Um, so they were, you know, my grandfather was commuting to Germany a lot, working over there and then coming home. Then one of our cousins moved to Australia. Um, uh, my father and, and, and grandparents took a ship out to Australia and they thought that they would remain in Australia. They then had second thoughts, went back on a boat again to Croatia for a year odd, um, and then realized they made a mistake and came back <laughs> to Australia again on a ship. So my dad spent a lot of time on, on those on those long voyages um, internationally that the, the ships used to take. And yeah, then my sister was born in, in 1979 and I was born in 1984 and uh, we're first generation Australians. But um, I guess the heritage thing that I always tell people was, uh, you know, I grew up in Australia and was born in Australia, but I was, I was raised Croatian. Um, you know, our house and our home was basically Croatia. Uh, outside of that, it was Australia, but in, in, in our home, it was Croatian music, Croatian food. Um, you know, it was Croatian uh, items on the walls, art, uh, you know, my grandparents, wherever they babysat, spoke strictly in Croatian. Um, so, it was kind of like, it was pretty cool. Uh, back then, you know, as a kid, you're kind of, I wouldn't say embarrassed by it, but you're like, you know, everyone else is speaking, you know, English and Australian and kind of like, you know, you're trying to fit in as a young kid. But when you look back as an adult, it was awesome because I got to learn language basically without going to school for the most part. Um, you get to learn about customs, ideals, all that kind of stuff. And when I got to visit Croatia later on in my life, the transition was pretty easy for me. So do you feel more like you were Croatian rather than Australian when you were, you know, a kid growing up there? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Look, I'm still very proud of 
being Australian and, and what Australia has provided to our to our family, um, you know, leaving Croatia was hard, very hard for my grandparents. Um, you know, Croatians obviously, as we know, are very proud people, very sentimental people, and very family orientated. So to, to get up and leave and take that risk, um, mainly economic and mainly to, for a better life for their family, was was tough. So I, I consider myself both. I think a lot of my ideals and hard headedness comes from Croatian side and. I think um, that's a good thing at times, and and I, I'm also very proud of the fact that Australia's you know provided a lot for myself and, and our family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice to have that you know sort of dual identity for myself as well um, in the U.S. as well as being Croatian. You know, I feel that sort of dual identity of being both. You mentioned your dad taking what was that three trips there back and there again? Uh, they're back there back, yeah. So it would have been yeah, it would have been three yeah three trips essentially. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, that must take what almost a month at three weeks two three weeks oh yeah it was it was months yeah i think i think it was eight odd weeks i think if i remember correctly it was six to eight weeks you know so um you know basically a a third of the year was spent on on a boat for two years of his three years of his life so um yeah pretty interesting that's crazy i'm sure he's told tons of stories about about that and about the trips like that um oh, yeah making friends on the ship you know playing table tennis uh all those kinds of things um they definitely weren't the ships they are today the luxury cruise liners they have it was pretty bare bones but just being restricted to, to to the boat for you know that long would be pretty hard i think um even for myself to do these days you'd, you'd find you'd find your way obviously adapt but um yeah, after after knowing how long it was and how much how much time it took then to do it two more times, it's pretty painful. Yeah, that's nuts. A different time then, especially now knowing that you can take an airplane, you know, less than a day, go from one place to another. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about you know your childhood growing up and sort of when did you start getting into basketball? Yeah, uh, growing up, I, I didn't play basketball. I didn't start basketball until kind of not late, but later for most most uh, athletes um I, I did did gymnastics first funnily enough because my sister was older um she did gymnastics so I, I kind of you know parents were like it's just easier to take them to the both to the same spot maybe they'll both like it I, I hated that I did that for about a year and I hated it um, I'm more of a ball sports type guy so uh, after that I did a little bit of taekwondo uh, and then I did some Australian rules football so our, our code of football here in Australia and that's outdoors in the winter, so very muddy, very, very dirty sport. Um, parents were okay with it, but didn't love it. And then I, I just naturally just started watching basketball on TV as six, seven, eight-year-old and ended up loving basketball. And, and um, it was kind of the in thing here at the time in Australia in the 90s. The NBA was booming. And then I, I asked my parents if I could play basketball, and they kind of said, look, you've, you've changed sports three times now. This will be your fourth. Um, if you change sports one more time, that's fine, but that's it. There's no more a, a year into that sport saying, oh, I'm seeing this now, I'm going to go to the other sport or I want to try something else. It was like, I think I was about nine years old at the time. They said, if you choose it, this is it. There's no more of those expensive uh, uniforms, fees, all that kind of stuff. It's very expensive, at least in Australia, to play a uh, junior sport. And I said, cool, yeah, I, I love basketball. And that was kind of um, how I got into it. Uh, my father was a, a mechanic, uh, essentially, and there was a hoop that was um, drilled into the wall outside of his workshop that was from a neighbouring um, uh, smash repairs panel beater shop. So they used to use this ring to hang, you know, parts that they'd stripped from cars and painted. So they used to hang that up on the ring to dry in the sun, right? And and that was the first hoop I started throwing a ball through. So it's kind of surreal, like the, the story of how it all went. And then 
took it up competitively and and never really looked back. Wow, that's crazy. Starting from that and then going to the NBA, you know, years later. What who were sort of some of your idols or what sort of what teams were you following when you first started watching basketball? Uh well being Croatian descent, for me it was Tony Kukoc, um, mainly because I was a very similar body type to him, um, really skinny and lanky as a young kid and um, similar kind of games as a young kid. So he was a guy I looked up to and obviously the Croatian heritage helped. Um, obviously, Drazen, um, being Croatian descent, everyone kind of loved what he was about. I mean, he he passed when I was only, you know, seven, eight years old. So I didn't get to see a lot of him, especially with technology back then. You couldn't really see those games in Australia. Uh, Luke Longley was a, was a guy from Australia that, um, was only the, really the only Australian player that um, was a was a, a mainstay in the NBA um, at that period. You know, there was there wasn't many guys that, that got over there and actually stayed for multiple years. There was guys that went over for a year or two and didn't make it and came back. Luke was kind of the mainstay. So those three guys. I mean, I was a I was a Bulls fan because um, of Tony and Jordan and all that kind of stuff as well. So I enjoyed watching them. So, but yeah, the nineties was a really fun time to to be a basketball fan. Yeah, well, yeah, Tony Kukoc and Drazen Petrovic, two legends, of course. Did you ever get to meet up with Tony once you started? I played with Tony. So, um, yeah. Wow, really? I mean, yeah, it was so my, 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 uh, yeah, really like crazy, surreal um, moment. You know, it, uh, I, my rookie year uh, with Milwaukee Bucks, Tony was playing for the Bucks at the time and was a free agent going into my rookie year. And, and they brought him back on a one year deal to kind of be a veteran for me. And, um, to think that I was, you know, wearing his his jersey as a young kid, like literally, there's a photo from 2003 when I visited Croatia after we won the World World Junior Championship in Australia. We played that in Greece, and I'd never been to Croatia, so I thought I'm in Greece. I might as well, you know, go back, back to Croatia. It was the first time my father and mother had been back um, since they migrated to Australia. So we went to Croatia, and I I, I did a bunch of tours. I, I met um, Drazen's mother and father, and I went to the museum and there's a photo of me uh, at Drazen's grave um, with the Tony Kukoc number seven Milwaukee Bucks jersey on. This is before I was, you know, even close to being drafted. And then two years later, I get drafted by the Bucks and I'm I'm playing with Tony. Um, so, in fact, he even threw me a – I hit a game winner in my rookie year and um, with 0.7 seconds left against the Spurs and, and Tony was the one that, that threw the assist from the sideline. So – full circle the way life works and um it was really cool to be playing with one of the you know tony wasn't at his best then he was 30, you know in his mid to late 30s and body breaking down but it was just awesome to be around one of the legends of, of not only croatian basketball but european and american basketball in general absolutely yeah i'm, I'm sorry to say i didn't realize he, he had played that long i didn't even realize he was on the bucks I mean, i'm only 26 years old so that was i guess i was about 10 or 11 when that happened um yeah yeah Wow, that's awesome. So he was sort of your mentor on the team. That They brought him to sort of show you the ropes and everything for your rookie year? Yeah, obviously it was a no-brainer for them. It brought him on the vet minimum. Um, so they knew my Croatian descent and they knew that he was Croatian. They knew that I was I idolized him to, to an extent. So um, it made sense. And it was, it was, like I said, it was really, really cool to be able to sit on a plane with him and talk and we used to go out to eat lunch on the road together or before the games or after the games. And, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was good. That's awesome. Um, going back to, well, sorry, let's talk about the draft. I mean, you were drafted in 2005 to the NBA. 
Um, and even before the draft, if, can you tell us, you know, sort of when you realized that, like, okay, I'm I'm going to be a professional basketball player? Was that like in high school? Was that in college? Even before, did you have your sights set on that? Yeah, I always wanted to be, but I, you know, you, you don't, you never know. Like you hear whenever you say that as a kid, people tell you like, well, you, you, the stats are, are really super low that you're going to make it, the chances, the probability, all that kind of stuff. So. I always thought it was achievable at some capacity playing, you know, it didn't matter if I was playing in the middle of nowhere for money as long as it was professional. Um, and then, you know, I think probably the year before I went to college, I really, really like my game just grew insanely. Um, I, I just got so much better. I, I made so much strides in a, in like a nine month period in 2002 and three, um, kind of towards the end of 2002 to, to, to mid 2003 that, you know, I go to the world, world champ the world cup in, uh, in Greece, under 19s, I win the MVP. We, we, we win the first ever medal for, for Australia in, in, a, in a, an international tournament um, at the men's level at, at under 19s. Um, so once that happened, I was like, I've got a legit chance now. Like a bare minimum for me is going to be playing professionally in Australia. That's kind of the low bar. Um, mid would be, you know, Europe, EuroLeague, and top would be NBA. I still didn't know about the NBA and, and the whole process because, like I said, Luke, Luke Longley was really the only Australian that managed to to solidify himself from Australia. So that was a time where a lot of international guys were still starting to get through the cracks as being, you know, first round peaks, but it was still kind of a, we don't know, are they soft, are they this, are they that? So, and then, yeah, had a great two years in college and, and then was on draft boards. The closer and closer I got towards the end of my college career, the higher and higher I got on draft boards. And then within probably the last month or two uh, in Utah, I knew that I was going to be drafted at some point. Um, and then it kind of went second round, early second, late first. And the further and further we got, it ended up being, you got to be a top five pick to a top three pick to, to a number one pick. So it kind of, um, it all happened real quickly. Like it happened, like I said, I was kind of a relative unknown in the basketball world in 2000 and probably two. Um, and then by 2005, I was a number one pick. Yeah, that's. I mean, you were also, I believe, the first Australian to go first in the NBA draft also? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that was kind of the pressure. Like, it was like, no one's ever done this before. Luke, I think, was, it was a 12th or 13th pick. I can't, no, it was eight. It was eight pick. Um, so, yeah, to even crack the top five uh, was, was really cool. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, if you put it in today's perspective, like it's a huge, you know, the NBA draft is a huge deal. You know, whoever goes first, you're all over social media. Everyone knows about you. You're basically instantly famous. I mean, of course, if you weren't before with the, the career you put up, what was it like for you when you got that, when you were selected first, did you feel like all of a sudden, oh, like I'm a star, I'm, you know, are people recognizing you? What was that sort of transition from college into a first round pick, you're in the NBA? Yeah, it's all it's all a learning process. Um, it's all it's all fresh and foreign. Like no matter what people tell you, people are gonna tell you do this, do that, do this for your money, do this with your friends, do this with your family. Like it, it ends up being you got you got to do it, and you got to make mistakes along the way. You figure out what works for you and what doesn't. And yeah, like for me, there was a, it's, it was an adjustment period. It, it goes from being relatively unknown, um, and you realize the beauty of of being the beauty in sometimes being unknown um, because. You know, you go to the, you just go to get groceries, and people want to stop and talk to you, which is fair enough. But at times, you you're in a rush, you have an appointment, you're you're feeling sick or whatever, or you're not looking your best. And 
Um, everyone kind of knows who you are. You, you go out for a drink and people take a photo of it and say you're an alcoholic. You go out, you know what I mean? Like there's all these things that come along with that. And that's just something you got to expect um, being in the public eye. And that's the unfortunate reality. So I, throughout my career, I navigated how I handled that. And towards the, the mid to late, I, I wouldn't say I was a hermit, but I just was very careful strategically of where, where I went and what I did because I'd seen countless numbers of teammates and, and countless numbers of people in, in the league get, you know, taken for a ride, get in trouble, do something stupid, have one moment of of letting their guard down and not thinking through something, and and then it can it can change your career. So um, I was in a few of those circumstances throughout my career, and I thankfully handled them pretty well and didn't really cause too much trouble as far as that went. So I was pretty lucky and steady headed. But look, at the end of the day, no one can prepare you for it. It's something that you got to navigate your own um, and figure out along the way, and you definitely see the pros and cons in a lot of different people. And um, unfortunately, you know, on the negative side is human nature comes out with a lot of people close to you once they know how much money you're making and you got to, you got to take that in stride and, 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 you know, can't hurt at times, but that's just, that's just the reality of what you deal with. Yeah. I think a lot of people think, you know, in a situation like that, like, Oh, you're famous, you know, life is easy. Life is great. But yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you don't really think about that. You know, you sort of have to be careful of even just, I mean, you, you're, how tall are you? Seven foot even or? Yeah, seven foot. Even just size-wise going out in public. I mean, I'm sure people are noticing you even if they don't immediately recognize who you are. So, you know, going anywhere, you're basically always in the public eye, I guess. Like you said, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I can't hide. I, I mean, I can't, I can't. Teammates of mine could put a hat on and blend in with the crowd. And unfortunately, I'm seven foot. So even if people don't know who you are, they are intrigued and they they might Google or someone, they might hear someone say your name and then they find out who you are, you know, uh, people that have no idea about basketball. So it's just, yeah, it's just one of the, one of the things you got to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, so your first couple of years in the NBA, how, like looking back on your career, how would you say, you know, with when you were with the Bucks, how were those years with the Bucks? I mean, you were a huge defensive presence, uh, in particular blocks. It was sort of your, I mean, that's what, you were best at compared to other players. 2011, you you had the the most blocks. Um, sort of in retrospect, how were those years with the Bucks? Yeah, I'm interesting. Look, the club was in a, in a period that there wasn't a whole lot of success in the 2000s. Um, it was a lot of rebuilding. I guess the frustrating thing for when I was in Milwaukee was we just couldn't put together a stable roster. Um, we we kind of changed uh, our roster was gutted every almost every season. We had a lot of guys. It was kind of the joke around the league was it was a revolving door of a franchise. So if you got a player, they'd come through the turnstile and then by the end of the season they'd be out of the turnstile. And you can't build you can't build long-term success or any kind of success uh like that. It's very, very hard to do. So we, we had a few successful years kind of the midpoint. And then once again, like we had a good year and then the next season, you know, there's seven, eight new players again on the roster. So um that was a little frustrating just to get a bit of stability. Um which then, you know, go on a golden stake. After that, uh, that's when you know I was finally part of a club that had stability. Um, even though they weren't good when I first got there, built into a stable club, and, and obviously they're still they're still one of the most dominant forces in the NBA ten years later. So, um, but you know Milwaukee was really good for me as far as being a small market, uh, small town USA. I think that fit my personality much better than going to Los Angeles or New York. Uh, I think that would have been a whole different ball game for me. And, I enjoyed my time there, everything but the weather. I mean, the weather is brutal in Milwaukee. Um, 
wasn't used to that, that, that kind of, those kind of temperatures below zero. But um, as far as a city and a town, you know, it, it was a, a part of my life where I kind of grew from a boy to a man. So it's very, very sentimental to me. It'll always have a special place in my heart. And, um, you know, I look forward to getting back there one day. <clears throat> you mentioned uh, the Warriors Golden State with whom you won a championship in 2015. What was different with that team, you know, compared to the other teams? where you know this team this championship team what was different on the warriors look we had we had a good mix of of, of young talent and steph curry and um clay thompson Draymond green harris barnes we had a good mix of veterans myself and iguodala and david lee and i think the roster was just put together very very well uh, a bit of luck goes into that like you know gms and coaches will tell you sometimes it's it's luck. You might you might not realize that a guy is actually a good a good person, good good guy to have in a group and can play and fits a role well or whatever. But um, I think one of the most important things was we we had just good people in that locker room. Um, that's half the battle in professional sports is is having having players that I guess have kind of got over themselves. Um, which look every young player is trying to solidify themselves and show that they can do more than they're being allowed to or more than their role is. In Golden State, we had players that had I was kind of a number one, number two option with Milwaukee for a number of years. Andre Iguodala was a number one, number two option for a few of his teams. David Lee the same. So we came, we were all in Golden State in the mid part of our careers, and we were like, you know what? Like we're okay playing a fourth, fifth role. Uh, we're okay being a role player to step and play. And I think we had a lot of guys accept those roles, and that's probably the hardest part for coaching in the NBA is, is, is you could have a, star, a team of stars, five players, but they can't all score 30. They can't all put up their averages. Someone's going to take a back seat to someone else, and that's when problems usually arise. We didn't really have those problems. Like, there was some teething stuff um, with, with guys that obviously went from 35 minutes to, to 20, and that's an adjustment. But at the end of the day, when you're winning games – you can't complain too much because other guys are going to be like, well, what do you want, man? We're winning. We've got, we've got a chance to compete for a championship. And it, it kind of came together quick. Like it's, it was a team that was, was a laughing stock of a franchise three or four years previously uh, before the championship. So, you know, 2006, seven, eight, they had one good year in 08 and then all the other years were, were pretty poor um, to get to, a position where they're probably the most stable franchise in the NBA right now, as far as consistency goes over the last decade, is, is a testament to what they've built and the people that they've um, recruited and had involved with the club. Mm. You, so it sounds like they really played, you guys really played as, you know, a team and, and had chemistry. And I know Steve Kerr gets a lot of praise for that. Mark Jackson, also with that team, put in a lot of work uh, before Steve Kerr came, I believe. Do you, is, do you think Steve Kerr is really... I mean, is he really that great of a coach that he's able to do things, you know, these type of things with the Warriors and make them all a team? Or do you think also those players, you know, naturally are getting along and work well together? Oh, it's, it's a definitely a mix of both. I don't think Steve's reinvented the wheel with anything and he'll, he'll be the first one to tell you that. Um, and I don't think it's just solely player-driven. I think it's a balance. And, and you look at how hard it is to coach today. Um, you look at what, what happened with Steve Nash in Brooklyn, you know, uh, and, and Brooklyn, arguably one of the most talented rosters in the league, and they get off to a horrible start under Steve Nash. So that just tells you that it, it definitely matters with coaching to an extent, but it also matters with players. And I think Steve did a great job of, of having player input, allowing player input, but also putting his foot down when he needed to. And, 
um, you know, Steve simplified things, um, but also demanded some discipline on other things. Uh, we, were, we were a real high turnover team. Of course, Steve got involved. Kind of, the Warriors still kind of can have high turnover games, but he, he had an emphasis on not turning the ball over and, and, and really, really, you know, pushed that on us. But, you know, Steve and most, most smart NBA coaches will tell you it's, it's not about the game's changed the last 10, 15 years. It's not about traditional coaching about what you can write on a, on a whiteboard and what plays and, and what, what, what system you can implement. It's, it's uh, people management and personality management. And that that's 90% of it. Like if you, you could be a genius, you could be Red Auerbach or Pat Riley or Phil Jackson and have the best plays in the world and, and just be an unbelievable basketball Mozart. But if you don't have an element of, of, of communication and, and understanding and back and forth and you can relate to the players, you're gone, you're going to get fired. Um, I don't care who you are. That's just the reality of it. And, and that's probably not the right right balance. I think it should be 50-50, but it's really swayed towards if your star players aren't happy with you, even if you're winning, you're gone. Simple as that. And um, that's where Steve understands that, you know, you got to get out relationships with every player. Every player's personality is different. Like I can, I can yell at that guy over there and he's going to respond, but that guy probably needed go with a different tactic or put my arm around him every now and then. Um, that guy doesn't like to be spoken to either way, so we'll just give him a little bit of feedback. You know, it's, it's some, this guy responds better to film, video, we'll get with a video coach and showing the mistakes he's making. So you got to understand your players in that aspect, and I think Steve's number one attribute is that. Hmm. So you really have to understand and manage the players' personalities then. Uh, 100%. Andrew, you had a couple of freak injuries, you know, throughout your career that really hampered you know, both hampered your career, you know, playing wise, time wise, you're having to sit out just for things. I mean, maybe it hurts you to think about, but you know, when you hung on the rim and, and fall and fell on your arm, are those things that still affect you physically today? Like, are you, are you feeling, you know, effects from all the wear and tear of playing basketball? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's the same as anyone else, even without the major injuries, you, you're always going to retire with issues with your hips or your back or your knees or your ankles. I mean, it's a brutal sport. It's it's full contact, hard surface. So, yeah, I mean, I still have to, I have to work out to this day and thankfully nothing's bothering me um, to a point where I'm where I'm incapable of doing what I want to do on a daily basis. That's probably the most important thing when, and probably the main reason why I retired when I did. You know, I didn't retire early. I didn't retire late. I kind of was 35 years old when I retired. Um, and that was a main driver. I, I didn't want to get to a point where I play an extra year or two and that puts so much work, toll on my body that, you know, at 40, I'm, I'm struggling to, to be able to play the kids or go and do whatever I want to do. So I'm still super active, you know, um, playing with the kids a lot, swimming, doing all those, all those different things. And, and yeah, I have to work out. That's, that's the answer. Like I can't, it's not like I've retired and, and can now stay out of the gym. I gotta, I gotta, you know, go and lift weights and do some core work. And I still go see a physio once a week to make sure that body's kind of like a, it's probably now like a, an old, old, old vintage car, right? You got to just make sure that every now and then it gets a service and probably gets a bit more love than the new cars. And that's kind of how I treat my body. So touch wood to this point, it's been great. Uh, had a few surgeries when I retired, got some things fixed that I needed to get fixed that that were lingering throughout my career and haven't really had too much of an issue since then, thankfully. But uh, I'm sure when I'm, when I'm 60, 70 years old, um, there'll be, you know, the elbow is probably the biggest one, the elbow and the ankle are probably being joints. They're probably the two biggest ones that I just got to, make sure I keep maintaining and be careful. Hmm. Well, yeah, hopefully technology by then is even more advanced that, you know, injuries will be even easier to hopefully. Um, you know, I was just thinking, because you mentioned how Tony Kukoc was your mentor, you know, for that first season. 
And I wanted to ask about Ivica Zubats because you were sort of in that same role of Kukoc, but for Zubats, you were with him, I guess that was his rookie year on the Lakers. Second year, I think, yeah. Second year. What, what was that like? I read that you would explain a couple of things in Croatian to him, you know, just when, when things were easier to understand in his native language and were you sort of showing him the ropes? Did you feel like, like, oh man, you know, I'm sort of, I'm doing what Tony Kukoc was, was doing for me. Yeah, somewhat. Look, I think it's always nice when you have someone that can speak your native tongue on a team. Um, so it was the first time in his NBA career that he probably had that and just trying to help him. I mean, he was, he was going to be a great player in the NBA and I think he was in a transition period. The Lakers weren't doing too well throughout his career there. Um, so he was kind of head was spinning at times, like, you know, what's going on here? We're not winning, we're not playing well. So just trying to help him through that. And I think the biggest thing where I helped him with was just defensively, just understanding how big and strong he is and how he can really affect the game in the paint. So uh, we spent we spent a fair bit of time together. I was only there for four or five months, but we spent a fair bit of time together and we still talk to this day. Uh, we still text back and forth every now and then. And um, he's a great kid. Like I really got a lot of time for Ivica and he's, he's kind of, you know, done really well with his body of work coming from Europe and then coming over to the NBA and now solidifying a, a really important role for the Clippers. So I've uh, really enjoyed continuing to watch his journey and hopefully get a championship in the next couple of years. Hopefully, yeah, he's really progressed very well as a player year after year. Um, Andrew, sort of going back to Croatia a little bit, how often do you go back to visit now or if at all in, in recent years? Yeah, no, I had I had an apartment. Um, yeah, had an apartment on on the island of uh, Park in Novaya. Um, for I bought that in two thousand and nine. I just sold it pre COVID, luckily because I couldn't go back there anyway. Um, I just thought we we just had kids, and I knew we wouldn't travel to Croatia for a couple of years with with the kids because that's just a nightmare to get on on a long flight with with you know six month old and a two year old. So I thought I'll I'll sell that and then eventually get something else somewhere else. And then COVID hit. So I, I haven't been back since I think it's been almost four years now um, since I've been back. And, and I went I went every year from 2009. I went every year for at least at least two to three weeks and a couple of seasons, off seasons, I spent two months there. So um, I had a, had a basketball gym. So I, I familiarized myself with the locals there and I used to work out there on the island. Um, you know, found a weight room, all that kind of stuff. So I established a, a nice little routine. But then, yeah, with COVID, I haven't had an opportunity to go back and um, I'm actually planning a trip uh, this June. So I, I have a lot of family still in Croatia and um, my auntie and uncle live there. Um, uh, my goddaughter as well. So we haven't, we haven't seen them for, for a number of years. So we're looking forward to, to going back hopefully in June. Oh, that's awesome. Well, yeah, if you, if you were in Australia, you weren't even able to go anywhere in the last a couple of years with COVID and everything, right? Like yeah, the Australia and the EU had restrictions. And then it was just the last thing I wanted to do was, um, you know, it was hard enough to travel within Australia at that point. We had some crazy restrictions. Um, so the last thing I wanted to do was was travel around the world and get stuck somewhere, then not be able to get back. Australia was just crazily stupid with how they went with with even residents returning back. You'd have to go through a 14-day quarantine times in a hotel. If you were allowed back in the country, there were waits of up to six, seven months to get back in the country at times. So we just thought, you know what, like let's just stay in Australia until this this all kind of dies down a little bit, till travel's a bit a bit more kind of consistent, and we know we're not going to get locked down somewhere. So uh, the last thing you want to do is be traveling out of a suitcase with two two young children and be stuck in you know Croatia's not the worst place to be stuck in, but it's not it's not somewhere where we'd have 
um, things to be able to live permanently on the fly, right? It's, it's more of a holiday. So we, we didn't want to take that risk and it ended up being the right decision because Australia was just every other day they'd be changing decisions and rules and coin flipping on things. So, um, but yeah, now it seems like we've, we've somewhat passed all that and yeah, I look forward to, to putting a trip together in June and get back in the Mediterranean and get back in the in the water and around the people and see my family. Uh, yeah, that would be great. Um, just sort of as, as we're winding down here, Andrew, at the end, I just got a couple of fun, uh, quick questions for you. And, you know, speaking of Croatia, when you're in Croatia, what's your favorite food to eat there? Oh, my favorite food. Um, it depends where I am. If I'm inland in Zagreb, um, something to do with meat, obviously, you know, chavapi or something like that. Uh, but generally on, on the, on the Mediterranean, on the coast, it would be, you know, um, seafood uh, generally um it's the staple of, of the mediterranean diet um you know a lot of fish uh, a lot of potatoes rice that kind of stuff so um a good mix just depending on on kind of like like anywhere in the world it depends what region you're in they're known for their food i mean Novaya was known for um for their cheese um park and a park um so ate a lot of cheese there that was that was that was what was very big and, and a lot of lamb as well they're known for that too so um yeah it just depends where i am yeah, actually, I just tried Pashki Theater for the first time uh, on Christmas, I think it was, just a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah it's really nice. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite NBA moment from your career? <sighs> favorite NBA moment? I mean, just winning a championship. I, I think, um, you know, you look at a select group of guys that have championship rings and there's not many um, when you, when you correlate that to how many players have played in the NBA. So usually, usually, you know, 15 guys win it a season and usually the teams that win it, they'll repeat within that era, that decade, they'll win two or three, at least like the Bulls, they, they, they won, you know, six out of the nineties, right. The Warriors have now won four um, over the last, you know, 10 plus years. So to be in that select group to win a championship is, is pretty special. Um nicest teammate that you've had nicest teammate oh man um there's been a lot of nice nice teammates uh um but yeah i mean there's there's countless i've had a lot of close friends uh luke marbute was a really really nice guy um awesome guy just just always smiling and happy uh harrison barnes and leandro barbosa was the other one brazilian um just like always happy you could never tell you had a bad day uh so there's a number of guys countless guys that were really really cool that i still speak to to this day um but yeah they'd probably be the three that come to mind okay i got a final one for you here that i asked dino raja and i'm curious if maybe you'll have the same answer um a player that you would least want to fight that you that would least want to fight <laughs> uh anyone substantially bigger than me so i mean shaq Shaq is one guy that you probably, as soon as he gets his hands on you in a wrestle, you're in some trouble. So it's more of a duck and weave. Um, he'd probably be the one that, yeah, you want to stay away from, I, I'd assume. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's what Dino said too. <laughs> that's why I was wondering. Make sure you just bob and weave and just make sure he doesn't get his hands on you because I think once he gets, Hands on you. He's he's a he's an absolute beast. So yeah, I got I got I got done by him a couple of times in the NBA where he had some good games against me, and there was just nothing you could do because he's just he's just so big. Jeez. But you also played against Yao, right? Yao Ming. Yao was the other one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd consider fighting. He's a bit more uh, 
he's a bit more mild mannered and stuff. I, yeah. I don't think he's a fighter. Um, never saw him throw a punch, but uh, yeah, yeah, I was tough as well, man. He was he was a big big guy. In terms of guarding, sorry, one last question. In terms of you know defense, because you were known for defense, known for blocking shots. Um, who was harder to block, Shaq or Yao? Oh, Yao. Um, in Shaq, towards the end of his career, he lost a lot of his lift. So I, I got I got him a few times with some block shots, but Yao was just Yao was you know four inches taller than Shaq and shot the ball above his head. So um, he was just a guy that you, you couldn't really once he got in a nice groove, it was very very hard to stop. Now Shaq in his prime would have been a different story. Um, you know, in, in the nineties and early two thousands, he was unbelievable. You know, you're not blocking much of his shots. Um, but yeah, yeah, was yeah, was tough, man. It was a shame that his 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 uh, career was cut short by injury. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Andrew, as we're coming down here to the end of the podcast, I just want to thank you again, you know, so much for coming on the All Things Croatia podcast and you know talking to the diaspora and anyone else who's listening. Uh, it's really been a pleasure to hear about you know your Croatian heritage and you know your involvement in the community. And then, of course, your career and everything. Um, you know, I wish you the best of luck in, in the future. I'm excited, you know, for you to come in June. That'll be awesome to be back in Croatia. And I'm sure you'll have a great time. No worries. Thanks for having me.